Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools, along with my co-host, Beth Feely. I am Andrew Gutman, and we are two accidental activist parents who spoke up about the political indoctrination happening in our own kids' schools. And today we're going to talk about the political indoctrination happening at schools all across America, unfortunately. Uh, But we are very pleased to welcome today's guest, Eric Kaufman. Eric is professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He is the author of a number of books, most recently White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, He has written for a number of publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Times of London, and many others. He is also an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. So, Eric, thanks so much for joining us on Take Back Our Schools. Great. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Glad to be here. Great. So you just co-authored a report for the Manhattan Institute, uh, which is what we're going to talk about mostly, called uh, entitled School Choice is Not Enough, the Impact of Critical Social Justice Ideology in American Education. Um, Before we kind of get into that report, because there's a lot in that report that I think is going to be of interest to our listeners, um, maybe tell us a little bit about sort of what what motivated you and your co-author to do that study. Yeah, so I think uh, a number of us have been interested, a number of us social scientists who come from that kind of political science, social science background are are just generally, I mean, going wider than this, just interested in topics that have been neglected, let's say, in academic social sciences. So I think that's kind of the backdrop to some degree. Um, and think tanks are kind of one place where you can publish, um, again, what we would consider to be just a realistic analysis of what's happening, but on topics that are maybe not as easy to research or as favored by academic journals. I was going to say, uh, can this get published in a, in a real academic journal or something like that? Is that just I, impossible? I would, I would say that it falls into, under the category of not impossible, but very difficult. <laughs> you know, Quite frankly, maybe not many as people, not, not as many people would read it. You know, it's a smaller audience. Oh, definitely. And I think uh, if you follow any of the work of Lee Jussum, who he shows that, uh, you know, even much more rigorous and high powered studies on discrimination that don't find an effect of discrimination are almost never cited compared to the very odd studies that do find an effect. So that's an example kind of because of the nature of the social sciences and academia being heavily skewed, something like 12, 13 to one uh, left to right, you're not going to get much interest and it's going to be hard to publish. So so that's kind of a little bit of the backdrop. Um, I also have an interest in the cultural uh, dimension of politics, cultural conflicts. And so initially that was around populism, let's say with Brexit, with with Trump. Um, and now I'm looking a lot at these so-called culture war conflicts, which I think really are about kind of moral battles over the boundaries of, of acceptable speech and also the question of, of the national past and, and and how that's slotted into a narrative. So I think these sorts of things are rising up the political agenda, and that's hence the interest of us. Uh, spoiler alert, you, d- you do find that uh, critical <laughs> social justice, as you define it, which is really kind of what we know as CRT and gender ideology. Um, Correct. It's the- yeah. It's being taught and it's being taught everywhere and it is having an effect. Um, can you, I guess, expand on that a bit? And um, I'd be interested to know if this confirmed what you had already thought or if there were some surprises uh, in the data for you. 
So, yeah, I mean, initially this study was undertaken. I did a version of this in Britain with Policy Exchange. Um, and, and the idea behind this was just to say, well, we, we know that we're hearing stories from individual schools that are reporting quite radical things being taught on race and gender. Um, can we get some sense of a random sample of what is the level at, at which this is occurring in schools and for students as a whole? Uh, very difficult to get at that. You could do freedom of information requests, which have all kinds of problems. Schools don't have to reply. Uh, you can try and survey teachers, very expensive. Uh, they may not fully know entirely what's going on. Uh, so what we hit upon as the best method was really to sort of get at young adults who've just left school. We can't really survey anyone under, under 18, but 18 to 20 will capture people who've left recently. And then we ask them really what they were taught. And instead of using a term like critical race theory, which means many different things to many different people, uh, we simply took a bunch of concepts such as white privilege, systemic racism, unconscious bias, patriarchy, asking about these concepts, whether students had heard them from a teacher or an adult in school, number one, and then whether they heard them, um, essentially whether they heard opposing views to those expressed by the teacher or especially opposing respectable views. Uh, and that sort of gave us a sense of the level of this. And what, what we found really surprised us. I mean, it's just extremely, almost saturation level, I would say. If in public schools, public, private, religious, could you talk a little bit about the breakdown of, of the study and, and what uh, what kind of schools you're talking about? Yeah. So the first thing to say is 93% of these young people had heard at least one of these concepts. I, I, we had a, a list of six concepts. 74% had heard at least one radical gender concept, such as gender not being related to sexuality or, or to sex, sorry, um, or patriarchy, or, or, or and 90% one of the critical race theory concepts. So that means pretty much every school child and it's there's no difference really between the those who were publicly educated 93 percent of whom heard this and those who went to parochial or private schools also 93 percent and incidentally even amongst those that were homeschooled 88 percent reported hearing at least one of these concepts so this is something that really doesn't discriminate between those attending public or private schools and that will have implications certainly when we talk about the impact of school choice and so what is, how is this influencing kids? Like, how is that manifesting itself? Yeah, I mean, this is really one of what I consider to be one of the most interesting findings in the, particularly the U.S. study, was the the impact, really. Uh, be, when we compare uh, kids who haven't heard any concepts to those who've heard, say, four, five, six of these concepts, you see a big difference in their attitudes on policy issues. For example, the share who um, favor racial preferences, for example, or affirmative action, doubles. The share who express white guilt doubles. Um, the proportion that believe in the concepts that they are instructed in, such as unconscious bias or white privilege, increases from between sort of 50 to 100% as well. Um, and then, of course, that also impacts on partisanship because the schools that are teaching more of these concepts are, I, I think you could pretty well infer, more radically progressive than those who aren't teaching any of, the, any of these concepts. And if we compare, for example, a, Repub a child with a Republican mother 
um, who, who attends a school that has no critical social justice concepts taught with another young person with a Republican mother who attends a school with a maximum of six concepts. Um, if we take the uh, the young adult who had, has a Republican mother but no social justice concepts, they're about 61% Republican to 18% Democrat. If we go to the same kid, you know, Republican mother, but in a school that's teaching the maximum, it's down to 30% Republican, 29% Democrat. So really slashes support for the party of their parents. Um, and, and I think this is pretty, and we've controlled for a whole bunch of other factors, and I'm happy to talk about the methodology. But the bottom line here is, it really suggests that school indoctrination is working. Uh, it's working at a whole series of levels, whether that be policy issues, partisanship. Uh, and therefore, I think if you're at all concerned about the shape of the future electorate, these are going to be the voters entering the electorate, becoming the median voter. I think this has got to be a, almost an emergency level issue for anybody who's conservative or classical liberal. That, I'm going to pay special attention to what you just said about the Republican mother with the kid in a school <laughs> that, is, that is exposed to this because... Uh, I might need to do some additional work. Did you um, did you see anything that suggested that some perhaps this might be backfiring on at least some kids, or did you not measure measure for that? Um, I didn't see any evidence of that. I mean, oh, no. they, I know that. I would say that there there have been studies of university students. I mean, the thing is, the university students, university doesn't shift attitudes very much. I think we have a whole bunch of studies that show that that doesn't make much difference. Um, we do have studies that show that if you tell people that, you know, Trump is a racist, then support for Trump goes up. So there is a certain reactance effect that psychologists have been able to to show. Uh, so I have no reason to doubt that some of that is going on. But I think at these formative ages uh, in secondary school, I, I actually think that teachers still command a certain amount of authority. Um, I think by the time you get to university, that's much less the case. But I think at the a high school level, it really is. You looked also a little bit about social media influence. I think some of these kids right. were getting some of this indoctrination in social media. Is is that is that an impact? Um, is that less of an impact than schools? No, I think it's more of an impact than schools. I, I, I mean, I think it's very hard to be 100% sure. I mean, we did ask where people first heard these concepts. And in the U.S., you know, over 40% first heard it on social media versus just over 20% in school. Now that's where they first encountered these concepts. The question is how they encountered them. I think it's reasonable to surmise that social media is a larger influence. Uh, and certainly in the British case, we see that even more so. Uh, it's something like over 50% first encountered these concepts on social media versus I think 10% or thereabouts in school. Um, so I think the role that school is playing is to reinforce messages from the media and social media, perhaps in the American case, however, that where they're introducing 20% of kids to these terms for the first time, perhaps we could even go beyond that and say schools are having any, a bigger effect. Mm -hmm. Well, I also wonder the role of peer pressure and friends, because just in, you know, my own experience and, you know, through my kids, of course, that's going to play a role. Did you, did you look at that or do you have any thoughts about how to factor that in? Well, yeah, I, we didn't. Well, one of the options that people could say where they first heard these terms was from friends. And that was 
a percentage. It was less than 10%. It wasn't the dominant influence. Now, that's not to say that reinforcement from peers later on after they've heard these comments on social media uh, isn't a factor. I, I just just crudely going on where people first heard these concepts, I would say it's less important. However, that's not to say that there isn't this kind of culture or youth culture maybe permeating. Uh, and I also asked about celebrities, which which got a certain percentage, but not a, a huge percentage. So between social media influencers, peers, celebrity media influencers, you know, that soup is probably the largest influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but schools were, you know, 23%, at least in the US case. So that's pretty significant as an independent uh, place where people are hearing these terms for the first time. You talk, you, you studied or asked a little bit about the fear factor, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a, there's a strong correlation between kids fearful of, of speaking up about different issues. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I think the point here is that regardless of whether you're on the right or the left, I mean, you do you want your child to be fearful of being expelled, punished or shamed for what that for views that they want to express. Um, and I think what the results show is really the comparing again, young, uh, young people who heard no critical social justice in school uh, to those who heard the maximum number of contact uh, concepts, it goes from 27% fearful to 68% fearful. So that is a massive sort of two to three fold jump um, I'll say that the exact same result was obtained in the UK. It went from 17 to 41 percent, I think, fearful between those who heard none and those who heard the maximum. So this seems a pretty consistent finding. I, in addition, I've done research both at the Manhattan Institute and Policy Exchange on diversity training in in workplaces. We see the exact same uh, increase in fear um, with comparing those who've had the diversity training and those who haven't. Uh, so I think this simply makes people more race and and perhaps gender conscious and makes people more fearful. Uh, mm-hmm. Chill. It chills speech, really. Right. And one of the other problems is that um, you, you identify is that it, like, critical social justice is being taught as truth. It's not being taught in context and that that has a obvious real influence on kids. Could you tell us more about that? Exactly. Yeah. So if we, you know, if we ask in the survey, um, were you taught these concepts? Uh, were you taught competing arguments, or were you taught, yes, competing arguments, but were they were they deemed respectable? What we find is that seven out of ten of these young people say that they were only taught these concepts alone or as the only respectable view. So. Seventy percent. Wow. Yeah. Seven in 10. So essentially respectable alternatives are not being provided in almost well in in the overwhelming majority of cases. So most of these pupils are hearing these concepts as a kind of truth, as kind of fact, even though they are based on um, really pseudoscientific and not evidence driven um, research. I mean, this is not really something that is um, analytically rigorous or empirically verified, something like systemic racism. Uh, and yet that's re- it's really being taught as fact to these young people. Did you look at all about differences between boys and girls? I mean, we've had a lot of conversations on this show, and I've, and I've talked about that with my own daughter coming from an all-girls school, that girls seem to be a lot more susceptible to the indoctrination. I don't know if that's something you looked at in this or other research. That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I can certainly say that girls are much more supportive of critical social justice uh, concepts. Um, 
So that's definitely the case. Did I sort of look at the interaction between hearing about these concepts and the impact on views by gender? I haven't actually looked at that specifically. It's an interesting thing to look at because I know that in the UK case, where we did look at the impact of reading a paragraph about free speech and a paragraph about social justice, the social justice paragraph had almost no impact on young males hmm. and it had quite a large impact on young females so that is something that yeah i'll go back and take a look at and i can't tell you a hundred percent right now other than to tell you that in fact there's a quite a large gender uh split uh, amongst young people on these questions and refresh my memory did you look at this on a racial basis like where crt was taught to black students versus white students and if there were differences in how kids behaved or, or how much it influenced their behavior? Well, there's a slightly higher uh, critical race theory is slightly more likely to be taught to black students, but I think that's only a marginal difference. Okay. Um, and in terms of influencing attitudes, um, it doesn't seem that, that, that there was a massive difference uh, in terms of influencing attitudes. You know, I, I think I'd, I'd have to go and look at that more carefully. I mean, one of the things we saw in the UK, for example, is that um, non-white young people were less likely to express support for political correctness and for a number of these uh, tenets. And, and part of this, it seems to be the case that within the white population, there's more of a polarization, uh, a, politi a politicization and a polarization. But I need to, I do need to double check on, on whether uh, that polarization existed within our data. I mean, I'm pretty sure that we didn't see that much of it. But again, I have to have to double check on that. Um, the attitudes by race didn't differ an enormous amount either. Um, have you gotten I mean, what's been the feedback from this piece? I mean, it seems pretty powerful. Uh, have you gotten any criticism or, or I'm not sure there's always some, but not, yeah, not really. And this seems to be a pattern now in a number of reports that I've done, whether on uh, critical race theory in schools or diverse diversity training at work, you know, we'll lay out the data, we'll show the impacts on chilling free speech at work. And also one other thing we haven't talked about, which is chilling willingness to criticize a black schoolmate or a black co-worker so we we kind of lay out this information and it's it's crickets from anything left of center only sort of center and to the right outlets are willing to kind of engage and they've been pretty supportive i don't think we've really heard any serious criticism um it's interesting because if you actually listen to what's been said in the media you know you have leaders of major teachers unions you have celebrities like whoopi goldberg all say oh this isn't being taught this is just a few incidents i mean one of the uh, one of the points of doing this is simply to say actually this is being taught pretty much everywhere the the idea that this is not being taught is really i, I would i don't know if it's actively dishonest but it's pretty it's if it's not dishonest it's quite ignorant well now of course you yeah, go I ahead. was just going to say, it's certainly pervasive. That's all we've heard and continue to hear from the teachers, the teachers unions, administrators, um, and on the ground, like, oh, it, but it, even if they're not overtly teaching it, it absolutely informs what is being taught. And so it is, um, this is really helpful to counter that, because I know I've been trying to for several years now. <laughs> and so I've been waiting for the data. 
Well, yeah, and, that, and that's part of why we, we did it is to say it's it's just nice to have this is representative data. This is a sort of random draw of that 18 to 20 population. And and we're simply asking them, what what have you heard in, in class? And we're getting, uh, you know, 90 percent saying that we've heard a critical race theory concept, 74 percent a radical gender concept. Now, what teachers or, or teachers unions will sometimes do is to say, well, we're not teaching, you know, the high critical theory, Derek Bell, where we're analyzing legal texts and uh, making propositions about, uh, you know, how certain decisions were arrived at in a court. You know, yes. Okay. If you want, I mean, this is a bit of a shell game where, you know, on the shell, it says critical race theory, you know, you remove it. And, and but, but actually, if you look at critical race theory more broadly, these concepts such as white privilege, systemic racism, unconscious bias are all derivative of that view, which says that essentially any disparities are to do with uh, discrimination. And if we can't pin it down to individual racism, then it must be some unmeasurable, shady, shadowy property of a system, unmeasurable and undefined and unfalsifiable. So yeah, that 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 is very much informing these concepts. So I think it's pretty Orwellian and dishonest to actually pretend that this is not uh, critical race theory in some way. We'll be back with more Take Back Our Schools right after this. Hello, I'm Dennis Neal, and here's what's bugging me. The media are burying some of the biggest scandals of our lifetime, and I'm here to call them out on it and make fun of them for it. The Twitter files and government censorship, the Biden documents, the Hunter laptop, the lies of the FBI in the Russiagate hoax, China spy balloons and toxic chemical burn-offs. Join me to hear things no other journalist will dare tell you. All that and more on What's Bugging Me, available for download and streaming every Thursday right here on the Ricochet Audio Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Ricochet. Join the conversation. Let's talk about school choice a little bit. There's an enormous push now in red states in America for school choice fund students, not systems. Uh, I mean, you've entitled this, you know, school choice is not enough. Talk a little bit about why school choice is not necessarily the, the, the panacea for these issues of indoctrination in schools. Yeah, I, I kind of worry that a lot of the political capital and energy is pursuing something that because it sort of dovetails with that sort of classical liberal libertarian Republican tradition of uh, choice is very appealing to people. And they think, oh, well, if we can just get school choice, then we'll solve these problems. Um, And as I've shown, really, whether we're talking about private parochial or public school, there is in all three of those, a 93% penetration of these, uh, of these concepts. And so whether you, whether you get more people switching out of public into private or into parochial and even into homeschool, uh, it's not going to make much difference to the overall level of indoctrination. 
Um, and that's one of the reasons I actually think if it comes to a trade-off in terms of expending political capital, I would say put the political capital uh, into reforming school curricula at the public, public level, into intervening in those schools, inspecting those schools for political impartiality and enforcing political impartiality. That is a much that is going to be a lot more effective in changing the minds of a, long, a lot more young people than expanding uh, the private system. Now, I am aware that there are schools such as the classical, the classic curriculum movement, which are doing a good job. And, and no doubt, the more of those there are, the more people that are in them, clearly the better. Um, uh, the question, however, is in the next 10 years, 20 years, um, what is going to be the most effective way? Because these are going to be the voters that are entering the electorate, that are going to be entering workplaces, shaping the culture of free speech. Uh, I think something much more urgent has to be done than hoping for the spread of these systems, hoping that parents avail themselves of the classical. Because just switching to another private school is is just not going to do it, really, because they're the teachers that are in those schools. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they are much worse. <laughs> At least the elite private schools in this country. And we'll talk about the UK too. But yeah, uh, I mean, they're they're you know they had all this money to bring in these DEI consultants for the last ten years, uh, and so they tend to do it much more strongly than the public schools even do. And that's something I think a lot of people don't don't fully appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So well, and I've always thought. You know, this isn't we have to change it in the schools. I mean, just given the number of kids that are in the public schools, you just cannot ignore that. I think it's I think it's more 90 ish percent. But at one yeah. point it was like 95. Um, you, you also talk about um, kind of a red state, blue state, that there's a different strategy to perhaps pursue. Um, so I wanted to, to hit upon that and then also just talk about some of your broader policy uh, recommendations, which you do include in the report. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, right now we're in a situation where even in the most Republican fifth of counties in, in, in terms of 2020 vote, um, we've got something like an 88 uh, percent penetration rate of CSJ in the schools. So there's a huge amount that Republicans at local level and uh, county level, state level can do to reform schools. However, in the solidly blue states, clearly that's not going to happen. And so the question there is, well, if certainly if you are a parent that doesn't want to expose your child to these concepts, your only choice is really to opt out and to sort of shop around. You don't really have much choice. So there, perhaps school choice is the best thing that you can hope for. Um, or deprogram at home. That's what we try to do. Yes. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although you don't actually know what's being taught. This is the other problem. Um now, on the flip side, of course, if you're a, you know, if you're in favor of critical social justice uh, and you're in Florida, then probably again, you're you're probably going to favor school choice um, if that's what you want to teach your child. So yeah, it it that's partly. Um, I mean, I do think to the extent that the federal government makes a difference, even though it's a state responsibility, uh, to the extent that federal legislation, I'm just not sure how the courts would would treat that. You may be better informed than I on that, whether there's anything that could be done federally. Uh, only if it violates civil rights law, which seems to be the tack that some have been taking. But um, I think really education is a state and local issue. So um, as, as it should be, I mean, in my opinion, so I, so I don't know. I don't know there either. Yeah. I mean, because I guess to the extent I know that Chris Rufo and others have been trying to make the case that this is a violation of civil rights, but if, if that's not upheld, 
in the courts, then I yeah. guess it's down to the states. Yeah. Well, and you have to find people that are willing to bring suit. And a lot of people are afraid to even show up and say anything. So that takes a very brave soul to to go down that path. So there just are not a whole lot of people. Um, just are you are so are you for banning critical social justice? Like what's what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, my take is that at the K-12 level, I'm generally in favor of bans. You know, ideally, we would have a discussion of, you know, Ibram X. Kennedy balanced out with a discussion of Thomas Sowell or um, John McWhorter. I I think that's highly unrealistic. I I think that is the, you know, that is the kind of goal. If we can pursue that goal, that would be great. But I think realistically in the current moment, uh, I think bans are probably the best option. I, I think that that's uh, my view, however, is that bans at anything above a K-12. So university, I would be against bans on academic freedom grounds. But where you're talking about young people under the age of you know 18 and under, captive audience, they have to attend, they have to get the right answer. Uh, and there, you know, teachers don't have academic freedom the way university professors do, uh, then I think states are very much within their rights to uh, very much shape the curriculum. And I think um, that's very much what they should do. In addition, I should say not only on CRT, but also on the content of history, where I would recommend, you know, students know nothing about the pre-colonial non-European past in terms of, particularly in terms of slavery and atrocities and other things. Uh, similarly, non-European empires. And I think without that context, also without the context of atrocities committed by utopian, particularly utopian left-wing movements, such as the Soviet gulag system, those are all very, very important bits of context. I, you know, yes, students should learn about slavery and, and uh, you know, the, the conquest, the Indian wars, etc. but they have to understand the broader world historical context within which that's situated uh, in order to actually have an accurate portrait of world history. And I think this is another big problem. So in all of those respects, I definitely think big reforms are needed to uh, the curriculum, to teacher training and a whole bunch of uh, other aspects. Well, teacher training is a big issue because one of the questions we always get is, and, and you know, it's, a, it's related to the school choice issue, if almost every teacher is being indoctrinated in this social justice ideology in their graduate education schools, which seemingly is the case in the United States, you know, what do we do? Where do we find teachers that aren't indoctrinated? Um, because there just aren't that many out there. I mean, do you have any thought on how to reform, you know, graduate education schools and teacher training? Yes. I mean, I think that, uh, so, so there's a couple of things to know. One is that I think it's not correct to think that most teachers are, true believers in this. I think many of them are, um, but certainly data that I've seen would suggest that teachers are a bit not as left-wing as university professors, uh, a little bit more varied. And I, and I think that, so you have a number of, of real strong believers that are coming out of those ed schools that really believe this stuff. Now, what, what I would say is a couple of things. Um, one is that you need to reform teacher training to the extent that state and federal governments can shape that curriculum. In Britain, it is certainly the case that the government could be issuing guidance, which could start to constrain the kinds of things that teacher training uh, produces. Um, also, you have, but I think the bigger thing is an inspections regime and a whistleblowing regime at the school level, which will limit what teachers are able to say in the classroom. And I'm, and I'm afraid that's probably the best 
route to getting where we are now. And in Britain, for example, the teacher inspections regime is is full of holes and it's, con- it's not controlled really by the, even when there's a conservative government. And even if the conservative government was serious, which they're not, um, you know, there are, too, there are too many barriers. But those are the kind of battles that need to be fought. Um, and, and, and I don't think teacher training, I think, yeah, trying to shape teacher training is important. Also, perhaps allowing a route for teachers where they don't have to be accredited by those, um, you know, ed schools is very important. And as far as curriculum itself, um, would you recommend, and I think you recommended in your report, just some sort of transparency mechanism so that it is very clear exactly what is being taught so that parents will know? Um, Have you heard of any effective, I guess, uh, transparency measures or? um... Well, this is all very new. And so I don't think we should count anything out yet. I I, I definitely think transparency has got to be central. Now, it could be the case. Some teachers will say this is a lot of work to put everything online. No, it could be the case that these things, materials have to be available for inspection by a parent on request. I mean, I think that's probably the best uh, option it, rather than forcing them, science teachers, to put up all their equations on you. Know. So so uh, that might be the way forward. Yeah. Um, and I think that would I think that would help a lot because I think it would sort of just remove this veil of secrecy that allows these things to be taught. Um, yeah. Well, I think a lot of trust has been eroded between parents and schools. And I think you're right that that would do a lot to restore that um, just because a teacher would know that it, well, a parent could expect that a teacher is not going to hide anything. The other thought is that with so much coming off the internet um, that it is, it's, you, you can't have a school board approving a whole curriculum ahead and then have it posted because the way that we, that teaching happens now, it just does not fit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, um, you know, this is this is interesting that I mean, one of the other problems, and I don't know how much of an issue this is, depending on each state is, you have these third party providers, and this is certainly the case uh, on the trans issue who will come into schools and essentially deliver propaganda. uh, And they're contracted by the school and some of these uh, providers will claim that their materials are proprietary, because they wouldn't want to let uh, the public see them because then they would go to competitors. Now that I, I think you can get around that simply by saying that nobody can uh, contract with a school unless they agree to their materials being public. Um, and so I think that's another thing that needs doing given the impact of these outside providers. But we've seen that we've seen that, you know, with FOIA, with Freedom of Information Act requests be denied because they say that these consulting materials are proprietary or subject to copyright. So they don't share them with mm-hmm. uh, with the public. That would go a long way, I think. Oh, no, I also think that in all of this, the, um, you know, the government needs to issue very detailed instructions and guidance with which takes away all the wiggle room. Um, and we, you know, we saw here in Britain, which has a law against indoctrination, which is very clear, but is not enforced properly. And the guidance simply said, well, uh, we all know ra- anti-racism is a consensus value. Right. Okay. So, without defining what is and isn't anti-racism, you've simply you've simply allowed then critical race theory to be smuggled right through that door. Um, so, you, what you have to say is, you know, the structural approach, systemic racism, white privilege, etc., are contested concepts that are deemed political. Only individual level racism is is what we would call uh, 
you know, anti-racism in terms of equal rights and, and non-discrimination. But that level of kind of definitional detail with examples needs to be provided. You can, you cannot allow even the slightest bit of wiggle room because the you know opponents will take that wiggle room because they're ideologically motivated to evade these prescriptions. So my last question, which I will ask selfishly, as, okay. as many of our listeners know, uh, we have decided to send our own daughter to school in the UK, uh, to a boarding school, having given up on American education. Um, you've done research similar, as you've alluded to a number of times, about British schools. Is the same thing happening in American schools and Britain, British schools? Is there any differences uh, in terms of how these schools have gone, you know, for lack of a better term, woke? Yeah, I mean, you probably should have sent them to France or uh, anyway. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm afraid it's 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 almost as bad. I mean, the the number that I had in Britain was 73 percent exposure as, as opposed to 93 percent. Um, however, if you compare the 18-year-olds who were still in school at the time of the survey with 20-year-olds, you know, the 20-year-olds' uh, exposure rate was 10 points lower than – it was like 68 versus 78 or something. So this is progressive. We're still catching it as it's being introduced more and more into the schools. Uh, but 73% would suggest, yeah, it's it's in most schools. Uh, I'd expect it in most private schools as well. There have been a few scandals, which you're probably aware of. Uh, you know, Eaton, for example, fired a, a teacher uh, over these issues. So there's no question this is coming in with a vengeance in British schools. And I really don't know what the solution is going to be. Is there is there any different? Last question. I said that was my yeah. Is there any <laughs> yeah, difference yeah. in any difference in pushback that you see UK versus US? I would say that, in my view, the US is most advanced in pushback, whether at school board level or at state level. It's vastly more, uh, vastly more advanced. the The voting public, it's decided elections. It's a much higher issue uh, on the voters' priority list, whereas in Britain. The proponents of this stuff can still keep sliding under the radar. Yes, there are stories in the press, but the, certainly the Conservative Party has not really been very serious uh, at taking this serious. A few speeches by the likes of Kemi Badnock, yes, that's great. The party as a whole is relatively uninterested, has done, has only made token gestures. They've appointed uh, an education minister, the current education minister is essentially, in my view, a, su a supporter of critical social justice. So there just doesn't seem to be that political will. Uh, so I think the most encouraging pushback is really in the United States, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, great. Andrew, England needs you. So <laughs> we're going to have to keep happy to have coffee. Is it? <laughs> I look forward to it. So well, well, Eric, uh, we really appreciate your work. You have put numbers to something that I think a lot of parents have been sensing um, and have given us some some you know something for the arsenal. And so we just appreciate it. So where can people find the report? If you just Google um, Manhattan Institute, uh, you know, if you Google the Manhattan Institute and my name, the report should come up. Okay. Um, my co-author is Zach Goldberg. So you just go Eric Kaufman, Zach Goldberg, Manhattan Institute. Uh, it'll come up. Great. And also, and where can people find you on Twitter? On Twitter, I'm at E-P-K-A-U-F-M. So Great. that's my Twitter handle. Um, please check it out. Excellent. And, uh, thanks very much. Well, we're really happy to have you on. Thank you. So this was great work. I know that I'm going to put it to use. I hope a lot of parents do. 
I think, yeah, I think the two big, big things which we talked about from this, like you said, putting data to what we all know is happening, but have a hard time proving. And this kind of proves exactly what we've all been saying. And then the second big takeaway from this is about school choice. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, and I think we've talked about this on, on previous shows, I mean, theoretically, we need to break the public school monopoly and we mm-hmm. need to break the power of the teachers unions and we need to give parents an alternative. But school choice is not going to fix these problems. And I think that was very apparent when you say that this indoctrination is happening in public schools, in private schools, in religious schools, mm-hmm. in, in homeschooling curriculum. And so school choice cannot be the only thing. It probably shouldn't be the main thing mm-hmm. that we as in the parents movement and that Republicans are pushing. It, it Well, I, this is institution capture. That is the problem. Yeah. So yes, switching where your kid goes to school, it could help. Um, and I, I just don't want to be too quick to, I don't want people to think that we're throwing that away, but it certainly is not the panacea. And right. um, yep. And so I think he gave not only interest, helpful data, um, also just these buzzwords that parents need to know, like so often we get caught up in, oh, it, it's CRT, it's not CRT. If you are hearing institutional racism, systemic white racism, white privilege, um, like these buzzwords, yeah. that should, your ears should prick up and then you should, um, you should know that that it is, it is in your school. Um, I thought it was interesting that he is for banning the outright ban of critical social justice I, CRT I, I think, stuff. Well, he's smart. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I honestly, I, I look. I know there's the debate. I know a lot of the kind of the centrist public intellectuals are against that, and from an academic freedom perspective. But hey, you don't. It's a different story in K through twelve. But I'm actually in favor of banning it in the university, and and I'm a big proponent of mm. academic freedom. But but okay. you know, like what Florida is doing on the DEI front, and I've I've very strongly believed you cannot have academic freedom under a DEI regime. The I, the inclusive of the DEI. Uh, and specifically the belonging aspect of the, of the inclusiveness yeah. uh, precludes academic freedom. It means you need a safe space. Well, what is a safe space? It means shutting down free speech and, and dissent. So I actually think you do have to go in and and get rid of this, uh, but but especially in K through 12 schools, I think this. So you don't, well, we should do another, we should do a discussion on this because I don't, I don't know if I'm quite there. And I, I it gives me a lot of pause. And I think that the, um, the hesitation. I think the problem is, is that this is so far gone. Um, we used to have a shared set of values where people respected free speech and ideas. Yeah. And that is that is just simply not the case. That's not the environment. So I don't know if an outright ban is my first but you have uh, to do it avenue. I mean, you have yeah. to be careful. And there, there, yeah, you have to, it's got to be the legislative and, and, and some of the legislation has not been very careful. Yes. So it, 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 there's tricky aspects of this. And you certainly are, are subject to the criticism that this is that goes too far and this is censorship, et cetera. But I think broadly speaking, um, we have got to get this out of schools yeah. to save no, I agree. Our kids, to save education, mm-hmm. to save our country. And, and there are some policies, prescriptions. Um, I definitely thought the, the transparency um, isn't, is a route that we can go. And yeah. I know in Illinois that you do have a right. We were, we talked a little bit. I wanted to be sure to hit this in the, um, the close that, you do have a right to see what your kid is learning. So if if um, people, if the school says, oh, it's a copyright infringement or these outside groups, you can't look at it. That's not yeah. a valid legal argument. You have a right, as long as you are not going to go then do a seminar with said material, that's when right. they can claim that. So it's important that parents know that. Um, well, thanks again for listening. And um, if you enjoyed today's show, please do give us a positive review. Please share it. And then of course, please join us again. So on behalf of Andrew Gutman, 
This is Beth Feely, and we will be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.